Welcome to Grand the Arch, Oral Histories of the St. Louis Music Scene. Hi, my name's Caleb True. On today's show, I'm so pleased to have Matt Wilson of 19 and Rum Drum Ramblers fame. While we've had the chance to talk to Stephen Inman in season one, now we get to talk to the other powerful frontman of the so important band from our Halcyon days. I imagine the first time seeing 19 is similar to many of our experiences seeing the Conformists for the first time. But for the life of me, I can't remember when I saw them first. Probably the tin ceiling very early on when I was still just on the cusp of being capable of appreciating what I was seeing on stage. I think performing with 19 at the Maplewood VFW Hall might be the earliest highlight that I can think of. It seemed like the entirety of the scene came out to that show, like 200 people or more, and the sense of togetherness and camaraderie were powerful that night. I think that encapsulates the magic of 19, the ability to fuse disparate elements of the St. Louis scene into a kind of family, if only for a few hours. While still in 19, Matt began learning roots blues technique, and performing blues, which eventually became his medium. He's fronted and played in many acts, committed to preserving and renewing interest in regional roots blues. Oh, and I should mention that in this interview, our levels are so different that I ended up deleting most of my own jabber. I actually don't think it makes a huge difference, but if it seems like I've flown the coop on this interview, that's what's going on. Anyway, here's Matt. Um, I got in, like, my mom always listened to music, um, and she was, like, always listening to, like, KC95 and loved, like, Van Halen and classic rock, so... Grew up on that, and then when I was eight, I got into Elvis, and that like pretty much changed my world. And um, I I thought that he was the one playing all the Scotty Moore licks, and so I totally, uh, you know, I didn't even know what I was listening to guitar-wise, but I, I had to get a guitar. It was probably uh, between seven and eight that I was getting into Elvis and started guitar lessons uh, when I was eight years old. Ended up taking guitar lessons for like you know, 15 years or something, and it got me going. Basically, I went through all my musical phases and learned everything that I do now, just self-taught, but definitely started with Elvis and then, you know, went through all of those exact, you know, era-specific phases. You know, I got into um, Nirvana and a lot of the grunge stuff, and uh, at the same time, I was starting to discover, like, Rancid and No Effects, and so that was really where I, I started leaning pretty quickly. And, um, and at that point, I was like, okay, well, then now who are these bands that are on these dudes' patches, you know? And, like, let me listen to some crass and, like, some weird shit. So that's how I got into, like, the older stuff, definitely through um, bands like Rancid and stuff like that. And then bands like that I got into into through you know so it was like the same lineage that everyone our age had you know as far as those eras of music and then i found blues that's my punk rock these days right on cool starting with elvis is fairly unique uh just says a lot of people will come from like hard rock or, or like 80s rock or something yeah and then to to come to blues and actually um you know be very much into the history of the the black music that Elvis was playing, mm -hmm. it's uh, 
it's it's come full circle and back around because now I've kind of caught up behind Elvis and the stuff that he was pulling from and you know you can you can go back as far as recorded music really but yeah and in my case it wasn't like ooh this Elvis is really good let me uh, let me check out some Nirvana it was like every time I every time I get into something I would realize that there was something that was really cool I'd learn about something really cool and then I was kind of like oh no I kind of have to I would kind of like disown the last thing I would I was like I'm at a point now where it's really and I'm kind of looking at that that subject as a whole because I my record collection has all of those things I still have my um, you know I've got a lot of Elvis I've got like every exploited record like it's it's got everything it all is I love it all but it, for some reason at that time I kind of felt like I needed to grab grab something and you know it sucked because I liked so much so many different things but uh yeah. you know and then once I found punk rock you know that was the the badge you know I was all about doing everything that had to do with that you know so, but the music I've taken with me, like I've never gotten rid of my records. I still have punk and oi and ska and reggae and blues and like everything in my record collection because throughout those phases, I've now come to the point where I'm like, oh, you know, I can respect Nirvana and I can respect all these bands had something to offer that grabbed me in the first place and they all got me to kind of the music I'm playing now. So, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting, but it was kind of backwards. Um, going from Elvis in that way. Yeah, I definitely remember uh, uh, things being uh, negating the previous fad kind of thing, like ways to go from phase to phase. That's so how it has to be. <laughs> it is. Yeah, you can't be like you. Once, once I found Rancid, I was like, shit. I don't want anyone to know that I like <laughs> Deftones and No Doubt. Yeah. You know, it was like. Yeah. Because at the time, it was all about, like, you know, I really wanted to have some sort of legitimate tie to a thing. And I, I really did like things. I just felt like I needed to grab on, you know. I found uh, Dead Kennedys was, like, my, one of my first favorite bands that I pretty much just took it and ran with it. I was obsessed. And um, now all of that tells the story. And I'll pull out all those records. And they all, um, you know, especially being into music, dating back to you know 20s and 30s it's really cool to place it all in in history um, where it was coming from and what came before it and what came after it you know it really tells the story for me yeah that's really cool um, yeah that's it's interesting i was talking to ryan caning too about this who I, I grew up with in like middle school and high school and he also now has like a this crazy collection like his music career has turned into like a musical historian career and it sounds like the same things that's super interesting. Yep, we are. We both have it pretty bad. We we are collectors, and we keep, uh, you know, trying to save bits of history. And I've got that going on in in many different aspects. But you know, I really like. Uh, definitely, uh, never stopped adding to my record collection. Um, but then, if I see something that I know goes in Ryan's collection, I hunt that down too. And so we tend to feed each other's collections. He collects a lot of. Uh, St. Louis KMOX stuff and all the country music history and um, he collects a lot of um, stag beer and beer ephemera and so and I collect Route 66 and you know old St. Louis anything St. Louis music related and so um, it kind of the, the collections support each other and, and together we can kind of really tell a story about specifically music in this region dating back to, to recorded music pretty exciting you guys are probably going to have to exhibit that stuff, you know. I am um, actually, uh, there's an exhibit next, all of next year, uh, 2021. It runs from January to December, and it's at the History Museum, and it's called the St. Louis Sound. Uh -huh. 
and it is this exact thing. It's uh, the history of recorded music in St. Louis, but not all of the Chuck Berries and Miles Davises, but some of the lesser known characters. Mm -hmm. And um, so they, I'm friends with one of the guys that's doing the exhibit, and I urged him to get Bob Reuter into the exhibit, and um, he got that going and so um he came over and um i showed him a bunch of stuff that i had anyway they're basically taking a ton of my collection and it's going to be on that exhibit all all of next year um you know any uh, giant signage um ike turner's office door from the one of the first the first place that ike and tina turner productions was at they're putting all this stuff in the exhibit it's pretty exciting so yeah that was the the whole idea was i want to i want to share it i want to pass it down i want to preserve it i want to get it out of the elements make sure the story's attached to it make sure there's provenance to it and pass it along yeah i love living among the, these items as well but i'm all about it like the, this is the first opportunity i've had to actually put my stuff in to an exhibit and be shared with the city of St. Louis. But um, but yeah, we got Bob in there and we got uh, Gabriel from KDHX. Um, I have a, some of his pieces and um, one of his trumpets. And uh, so it's like a bunch of people that I urged them to get into the exhibit that weren't already on their radar. So that's what I'm most excited about is that we're, we're gonna celebrate some, some people that were really important but never talked about yet. But yeah, that's my that's definitely my passion. But anyway, yeah. Growing up, what um, what was your first interaction with the like St. Louis underground scene? You know, my mom and my dad uh, lived in two different places. They actually never married, and so I always always was um, half of the week at my mom's, half of the week at my dad's. So my dad lived in University City, near the Loop, and my mom lived in St. Peter's. Basically, I spent the weekends in University City and so by the time I was about 10 I was walking up to the loop and just like poking around and um, and even before because we moved to that area when I was five I would say um, I would say you know like my stepmom would walk me you know to the loop when I was like that young but by the time I mean I was going by myself and um, I, I started seeing um, you know, of course vintage vinyl was really the the spot for me as far as one of the first memorable things, if I had to look back to be like a first, yeah. but um, but the whole regions so around the corner was a Meshuggah coffee house. It was a late night coffee house. I would go in there and I could like get coffee and I could sit outside and like smoke cigarettes. This is probably by the time I was 12, 13 and 14 mm -hmm. time period. Mm -hmm. And it was whenever I could get over there. That was my first introduction. That was the first place. The loop is the first place that I saw a mohawk. It was the first place I saw a, a, a studded leather jacket with a with a misfit skull in the back, and like first place I saw a lot of those type of things, just as imagery yeah. that that really really stuck with me. I it never, you know, I was like, I just somehow knew like that's that's where I want that's what I want to do. That's the direction I'm headed. And so seeing that, I probably would have found it either way. But seeing that gave me um, those those first images where I was like, okay. There, there, I can put my finger on it now. That's that's something that I'm interested in, but I need to know more, and I need to know, you know, I like to learn the depth of any, anything that has a, a subject that has a, some depth to it. I try to try to learn those things, and so um, so yeah, that's that's where it started. And I was also starting a band at this time. I was born in '85, so in '98. I was 13, and me and Steven were going to school together and just starting to play guitars together and do stuff like that. And by 99, we had 19, um, but there was, in those early days, Steven wasn't like the solid bassist. There was, it was all kind of 
so random because we were just messing around and trying to figure something out. But, you know, the, the second place besides the loop in those particular spots like, um, you know, Vintage Vinyl and Meshuga and Iron Age, the tattoo shop that was upstairs. Um, and on the weekends, that's where I went. I went to my dad's house and I walked up to the loop and I bought a Maximum Rock and Roll magazine. I'd get a cup of coffee, I'd buy a seven inch and I would sit in front of Vintage Vinyl and read the entire Maximum Rock and Roll. And that was, that was like my favorite pastime. Then we started like going to shows at the Centro Social, nice. and because um, I started, pu I I checked all the flyer walls at Vintage Vinyl and at the coffee shop, and I would like grab every Traveling Perverts flyer I saw, and uh, I because I they all had a similar theme and they all had different things going on on them. So I still have them. I have a whole binder full of Traveling Perverts flyers that all have little like comic book you know kind of scenarios going on mm -hmm. and um, you know I thought that TBA was actually a band that played all the time you know and like yeah and I and so I would say you know between the loop and being able to grab flyers off flyer walls and get the RFT when they, you could still see the creepy crawl listings and the high point listings and galaxy listings um, the, you know Central was the first place I started going to shows and um and then expanded from there. So from the loop, it goes to Centro, and from Centro, and meeting some of those people, it starts spilling over into you know Creepy Crawl, High Point, Galaxy, um, random shows over at Pops. So that's kind of how that all happened, and it all spawned from being able to be not that University City is is St. Louis City, but for me, uh, coming from going to school in St. Peter's. That was the, about as good as I was going to get for culture, you know. Yeah, that's pretty decent. It's also um, uh, important to mention, um, for the sake of history, that uh, at that time, the loop was just a little more seedy, and it was a different place. And then if you go back further to, like, the 70s, it was, like, extremely rough place that people wouldn't want to go. It was uh, probably akin to Cherokee Street back in the 80s and 90s. I think similar things were going on. There were just kind of, there were people down there, but they weren't necessarily um, what they are now as far as, like, commerce and uh, culture and all these things. And, and of course, now it's, it's, it's gone the opposite direction. It's kind of like going to the Galleria now. It's kind of fancy. There's, like, a trolley and uh, chocolate shops and all this stuff. But back then, it was still, like, there was still 3 a.m. coffee shops and uh, kind of like freaks and weirdos and uh, you know a different scene and a lot of those people are gone but it, w it was like an interesting time to be in the loop from my vantage point at that time around you know 97 to 2002 I'll, I'll say that whole window was kind of cool for the loop and then it kind of went to shit. I spent much time in Cherokee but I, I imagine the same things happened with Cherokee or happening with Cherokee. Right. Oh man, it's wild. It's wild, you know. Yeah. When we were all playing shows together, you know, Cherokee Street was still pretty desolate, and now it's just, it's the hotbed of, you know, it's another great street, you know, another great nightlife street, um, like so many. So it's cool. Do you remember your very first Chentro show? I do. I found the flyer for it. It was, and so we went there a couple times before we had the nerve to ask for a show, but I would say our first show there was within the first three or four times we had gone in, because um, one of the times we just kind of said, hey, can we have a show? And 
she just wrote us down. So the first one we went to, my mom took me and Stephen to, and this is probably, I would have to say 2000. I don't think it was 99, but it was definitely not late, any later than 2000. And it was Traveling Perverts, and it was I Start Fires, um, Little Pete's Band with Grotto on drums. And then um, I believe Miniskirt Fetish. And I might be blending some of these early shows together, but another band that we saw which I loved, and I still know a few people that were in this. It was like a makeshift band, but they were called Popeye, Popeye Khan, K-H-A-N, and, um, and they called themselves Pop Icon, yeah, yeah. and uh, I loved that band, and they had like a didgeridoo, and everything was just weird at that place. One of those first few shows was The Spiders, which just ripped my face off, seeing some amazing rock and roll in the original, when they were doing shows in the basement of the Centro, which was just like such a cool little vibe down there. And uh, But yeah, I, I definitely know that the very first show was Traveling Perverts, and I want to say that it was... Um, I Start Fires, Miniskirt Fetish, and I can't really decipher the other few. So how, uh, so you and Stephen went to Parkway South, is that right? Um, no, we went to Francis Howell, well, we went to we went to grade school together, so we went to several schools together. Dating back to first grade, but we didn't start hanging out really until, I would say, maybe fifth or sixth grade. And um, I went to a couple different schools, some boundaries changed here and there, but by about sixth grade, we were in school consistently together and both had like Nirvana shirts on and I was able to like copy his math homework or something. It was really a, a symbiotic relationship, I guess, or it worked for me. I don't know. But it was fun and we, we both had guitars and we both had Nirvana shirts and that was like pretty much the criteria back then for stuff, you know? That's the thing. You guys decide on who, who played guitar and who played bass? Um, I don't know if my origin story is going to differ from Steven's, but mm. I'll tell you what I what I remember it being. Um, so Steven was not originally in 19 and um, he was, we hung out a lot together and I met Tim, oh god, if I had to say it right, I probably met Tim, I think in seventh grade, and I had been hanging out with Steven in sixth grade, and once I met Tim, he was a drummer who was taking drum lessons and had a drum set. Yeah. Me and Steven were both guitarists. It was like, okay, well, I'm going to start my band. It was not in my mind to have two guitarists. So, you know, and he didn't really, he was cool with it or whatever. It was not a thing. And so me and Tim got a couple different, we went through a couple different bass players for a couple different, um, you know, we had a set of songs and we played house parties. Before we played the Centro, we were actually playing like garages in St. Peter's uh, quite a bit. And uh, had this guy Ryan on bass and he was like, uh, he had like a super like crazy earth tone bass and he liked to slap a lot on and do, he like asked me if I was into Jamiroquai and I told him I'd heard of her. <laughs> I was like, yeah, I've heard I was like, I heard of her, and then he started laughing at me, and I was just like, okay, you know, definitely in a different realm. But he did. I think he recorded with us because we did a we recorded a three song demo in '99, mm -hmm. and um, I think he's the one that's on there. Uh, I think his name was Ryan Waller, and then um, and then my friend AJ Hofstetter, who went on to just play so much amazing music and one of my favorite musicians, and um, we grew up together. He had a bass. I hung out with him all the time. He lived right up the street from me in St. Peter's. He played some shows, and we there's some photos of him with us. AJ played um, probably longer than Ryan, and I'm probably talking about matters of months. I have no idea what the timeline was. But yeah, AJ uh, did that thing, and of course went on to Anodes and, and uh, Orion Pax, and I can't remember all the other projects he's done, but he's killer in his own right, and that was a, a lifetime ago. But basically, we had those two guys, and it wasn't working out 
or something happened. I forget even what happened with AJ. I, I don't know what the deal was, but uh, I we were like gung ho. I was like dead set. I was like, I'm gonna book a show at the Creepy Crawl. Like we need to get going. And um, so Stephen was like, Well, I I've been listening to a lot of Primus. Uh, I'm gonna get a bass and play it like a guitar and see what I can do. And he totally uh, taught himself bass real quick and he already shredded a guitar. And so he's like shredding the bass just like a guitar, which is perfect like Matt Freeman style shit, which, you know, in punk rock is totally great if you if you just play with a pick and, and play the crap out of the bass like a guitar, yeah. you know? And so, uh, so it was like, oh shit, why didn't we do this the whole time? I kind of thought, wow, it's really amazing that Steven wants to like, you know, take a back seat and play bass in this band. And then lo and behold, he's the fucking dude springing around doing exactly what he would have done with any instrument. Did, you know, it was like funny. I was like learning all that stuff. I thought, you know, I'm certainly not going to play bass. I wasn't willing to learn bass. I, I wanted to play guitar. And in fact, the talk was, so we're doing all this stuff. And before we even did that demo, the idea was we were going to get a singer. I had no interest in or desire, did not strive to sing. And um, we were going to get a singer, and it was going to be awesome. He was going to be like the lead singer guy. And uh, we, we could, we, it never happened. Like, we never found anyone. And I would try to, like, I would talk to people and try to, like, get them excited about it. And they were just like, nobody was interested in being that persona. And uh, so I ended up being the singer. and started learning to scream and finding kind of a voice in what I wanted to do and Tim got better at drums and Steven got better at bass and then we got better equipment and uh, I bought a, those early days my mom would go borrow my dad's 86 caravan and she would like load us up and I booked us fucking everywhere we played Columbia we played Swansea like anything I could find we we were so kind of landlocked in St. Peter's and I had this way out like I, I knew people in other places in a it didn't take long for, for that not to be a, a novel thing, but 6th grade, 7th grade, 8th grade, it was kind of cool that I had a different window into different connections, and my friends uh, in St. Peter's, they thought that was really cool. Like, I would have my friends come spend the night with me uh, on the weekends, and we would go to the Loop, and I would show them my world, you know? And they'd be like, man, like, this is crazy. You know, so by the time I started booking my band, it was like, okay, I got the band, I got the songs, we're getting the pieces in place, got a place to practice. Didn't drive yet, but my mom was willing to take us to any gig and she'd sit outside for us and uh just wait and yeah and uh and so i just started just networking and booking anything that was happening you know it was like a, a tattoo shop threw us on a little festival in columbia uh, where we ended up playing nazi punks fuck off for a room full of hammer skins we're like 15 and like i get thrown into my amp my ha my amp flies back and the owner of the tattoo shop is like you guys have got to go and i was like damn i think we just played Nazi punks fuck off for some Nazis and like had no idea at the time like I kind of thought that that was like a I was listening to 80s punk and thinking that some of the subject matter was already of a bygone era like man there's not fucking Nazis like true to form no fucking way like that's gotta be like there's no way and you know maybe there was then or maybe there's maybe that happens in different regions I was so like programmed uh you know as we all 
come into this world that way and you start to realize like wow like not one thing has changed but yeah that was my first uh, encounter with that in Colombia it we couldn't even drive and my mom's like pulling the minivan up for us to load out and there's like a bunch of hammer skins like mad dogging us and cussing us out that's how it all kind of spawned out is because we were in St. Peter's and we just needed to we needed to take any gig we could get you know being in St. Peter's at least for like doing the reach all the way to Colombia seems to be a, like a, maybe a decent central place to start out from it's great that's great definitely I'm thinking like Peter's to Columbia is more like two hours as opposed to from St. Louis proper like three hours that, that starts to feel like a haul yeah yeah it's a little further away and um you know, but that being said, we would go to, um, we played a lot of like VFW halls in Illinois, like Collinsville and Swansea. And, you know, I, I'm trying to remember this because I know that there's ones I'm forgetting. I started to quickly realize that uh, some of my friends in South City that we would catch up with, we just saw them in South City. And some of my friends, uh, you know, we hung out with a lot of people in Illinois, like the Frankenhookers and a lot of these guys over there. And uh, they hung out over there then these people over here and these people here so we started like you know and more, probably more so me than tim and steven but um um i was just like these are my friends here these are my friends here these are you know and i would like hang i would have people to hang out with everywhere to the point where i would st you know if i was passing through kansas city i would hit up i was like oh i know people here you know it started to get exciting i was i was building my world by networking and the world became smaller that way so i think that's one of the reasons why we permeated a little more because i never kind of realized that we had uh, left some sort of lasting impression at all. Once Steven kind of hit me to that, I had been thinking about that maybe being one of the factors is that we just probably did, you know, and this is not like, not in a boastful way, but I'm just trying to articulate what it might've been. We probably we probably did 10 or 15% more than some other bands because we, I was like dead set, you know, I really wanted to get out. At that time, I wanted to maybe even leave St. Louis, but wherever it was, my idea was to keep that band together, no matter what, like, I'll go where Tim needs to go if he's got to go to school, whatever we got to do, like, this is going to be my thing. You know, it was like pretty impractical, but that was where my head was at. I was like, I don't need to go to college to play in this band, like, I'm doing this, this is what I'm doing. We played a lot, and uh, we traveled a lot, and we found means to do stuff, and we recorded a bunch, and so it, it was a combination of those things that uh, kind of gave us a little body of work that was going to last, you know? How did you guys record your first, uh, your first, uh, is that full-length demo, or, I know it's not tearing me apart, it's that thing that, uh, it's that first, like, few songs that were yeah. kind of tearing me apart? There's three sessions. The first session, I don't even know if Steven mentioned it, mm -hmm. I don't know, because um, he, he's not on it, right. but uh, 19's first session was in 99, and it was, I forget the name of the studio, but it was a guy's basement in Chesterfield. The guy worked at Mozingo Music on, like, Manchester or something, mm -hmm. and um, he sold me my first microphone. I bought a Shure 58 and a cable and a, and a stand. Mm -hmm. And um, he said, hey, I got a studio in my basement. And it was uh, his parents' house, and he had a whole section of it made into a nice studio. And um, we gave him 100 bucks. We met him the next week. We gave him 100 bucks, and we um, recorded three songs that were originals that I wrote. And, um, you know, we tracked the music live, and then we added a guitar track, and then we added the vocals. 
and that was my first experience recording and um, it has nothing to do with what we ended up sounding like as a band it's very 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 bad and but it was like done super clean like it was it was almost like i was trying to figure out how to make it sound more more punk you know it was like this is just too sterile and i didn't even get the whole recording thing anyway and so it's really bad representation but it's a cool little time capsule of like what i was going to go on to do but when so enter steven the following year uh we put together an album called ridiculing anything and everything in our way that was our 15 song first full-length album that you hear at the end of tearing me apart and um and i love that session that is probably to me i would have to say even though tearing me apart is the sound and the band that everyone loved and that's what people that's finally where we caught on and people were able to, to pinpoint what we sounded like but um that middle album that first full length to me was the actual sound of 19 like when i think back to it that was 19 and um we evolved through um listening to a whole lot of you know hardcore and stuff that was all happening at the time that was really new and interesting to me tearing me apart really was kind of an evolution of that where i was all about trying to you know i was like at, also at the same time listening to um dri crossover a lot that was just such a like such a crossover thrash you know hardcore album and um so i was all about like shifting the sound in an organic way to uh, incorporate something new. And our thing was like, we didn't want songs in the same key as each other. We didn't want songs that sounded anything like the last one. We wanted something brand spanking new and cutting edge every time. And it had to be as fast as possible and as precise as possible. We pushed ourselves very, very hard. We practiced a ton. Yeah got ourselves to a point where we were kind of a machine for a certain point even though we uh, when we record we realize how out of time we were we were in time with each other so well it was like an organic thing we didn't have to think about it and that became one of the things that people loved about us is that it was like fast and loud and the speed was a point of pride you know it was like the faster the better and that was just it you know at that point that first album i think represents us better because um kind of shows you where we're headed but also that's the first meeting with steven and so there's you know the band really is one third as far as writing like tim came to the table with a lot of stuff steven came to the table with like so much brilliant stuff and then and i did my thing and my stuff was always kind of it always felt it always felt less articulate than steven's but it had the message it was very much the uh Tim Armstrong, if you want to go with that, kind of like more rough around the edges, trying to say what he's trying to say, but it was kind of more, you know, not as eloquent. And uh, and Stephen is like bouting statistics and saying some real shit and like woke as fuck. And we were always on that wavelength. Everything was just all about revolution. And we were all about, you know, people were telling us that because we were white, male, heterosexual, middle class, whatever, suburban kids, uh, that we had no right talking about racism and sexism and homophobia it was before i could really put my finger on what you would call white privilege at this point you know our idea at the time was why not if you're saying we have a platform then i guess um we need to go ahead and tear it down and at the same time use that platform to to say these things to me it was just like we need to be saying this stuff i was so passionate about it so yeah it was kind of like we all brought something to the table and so that you know going back to that first session i love it because it's it's got some really cool steven stuff some really cool stuff that i wrote and it's got a killer sound and it was um 
that session. That was uh, uh, who I call the famous uh, Jim Callahan from Jupiter Studios. When he was, um, he's the guy who went on to, to create quite an awesome studio and record a lot of really great things. And in the early days, he did it part-time in his basement, in another Chesterfield basement, or like Wildwood or something. And so I found him in the phone book, and we, he gave us a really good deal, and we went out there and spent three or four days with him, gave him all of our borrowed money. We uh, made that album, and he worked with us every step of the way, and it was amazing. And then Tear Me Apart was done at Jupiter Studios by Jim Callahan by the time he was on uh, Washington. And so he had like this 10th floor loft, big studio, crazy place. We actually slept there and like, you know, like had like a real band experience doing the album. And it was like super, super pro. And I, at that point I had had like, finally got my 5150 half stack and I was just like super stoked. Everything was just ready to roll and it was perfect. and. That was tearing me apart, and that one has to me has like the the slickest sound, yeah. and um, you know that's the one that uh, kind of we were aspiring to make. Really, uh, it feels like a culmination, um, but I also think that like my education from that earlier record is like maybe the most nineteen. That that's what I mean. Like that, there's just some stuff on there that I can't forget about because it was so definitive for us, and. Um, and it what yeah if you listen to a song like my education and you compare it to like the song tearing me apart it's night and day what where we were headed like what we ended up sounding like but that being said we were never like looking for a sound to land on we wanted every song to sound completely different and if there was some sort of similarities it became the signature of the band you know we we liked chant vocals we never we never said oi but we'd say hey you know it's like we there were certain things where we were really particular about, but that being said, we wanted every song to sound completely different. So we would have just kept making different shit every time until you see if you ever run out of shit or not. I wish that those weren't on the same disc, by the way, but at the time it was kind of like um, we were all about conserving and recycling and, and being like as good as possible at everything like that. Yeah. And so, you know, shit, if you can fit 60 minutes on there, why wouldn't you press all of the music that you've already paid to record? It was like a very, like, anarchist kind of Abby Hoffman or Jeff Ott type of thing to be like, you know, yeah, use all the time on a CD that's wasteful. And it ended up being a lot of people saying, yeah, I don't listen to it anymore because there's, it's just, I can't just put it on and it's over. It's just like, it just keeps going. Like, I had, you know, tattoo shops, uh, like All Star would always spin it. And they were like, yeah, it was too long. We had to take it out. And time and time again, it was a problem that there was an hour's worth of music on that CD because it's like a ton of like very short songs. But if you listen to everything on there, you might find some continuity in the sound of the band and some stylistic cues here and there as we were developing them. But uh, I think everything was as different as possible. Both those records, I, I like both of them a lot. Um, but yeah, they do sound pretty different. Yeah. But I think, yeah, I think they probably accomplished different things, too. Like, I feel like there were, you won over a bunch of people with the first record who really, really wanted something that they could, like, kind of study and then, like, perform with you at shows. Right. And then, like, that second record, probably going to be another set of folks who just, like, weren't going to be, like, receptive to something as, as raw as the previous one. 
That's totally true, and that's a great point. I was proud to win over people who were, you know, there was all kinds of people that loved to hate on us. I was always hustling for every kind of uh, opening slot I could get at the Creepy, and we'd open for U.S. bombs, and, like, all the punks with, like, Mohawks and Liberty Spikes and shit would wait outside against the other building in the parking lot and then when we finished they'd all file in and watch the bombs and i remember like naively just thinking like you know hey come on guys like you look like you might like what we do you know what i mean because i i am interested in hanging out and like but you know there was always that crew that just like was just like never gonna give us the time of day you know and then eventually we started winning some of those people over or like somebody's like hey what's up doormat and it's just like oh okay this guy's cool with me now right on i would get excited about that but you know at the same time it's like can't forget that yeah there was all those people that went to every single one of our shows and sang every single one of our songs from day one it's kind of interesting maybe at the time the drive was i'm gonna win over people that like punk rock music are gonna dig something that we do like they're gonna want to start coming out to our shows and we want to be their friends and it's all about unity and blah 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 and in the end it was really the people that were with us the whole time and those are the people that some of which i still know to this day very well yeah you guys were uniquely like a scene band i felt it just were so many different like clicks of the scene that all sort of like agree that they liked you guys which was nice. There had to be a few bands like that. You know, the scene feel the way it did. You know? Yeah, that's that's cool to hear. I mean, that was a byproduct of like what we were, what we just were doing. We just did what we knew to do, which, like I said, was to try to play a lot of shows and make a lot of friends. That being a byproduct of it is really cool because in the end, we you know we started bringing people from South City out to Sally T's. Whatever we could do, we did, and we you know we went on one tour and uh, with the Pubes in 2002. That was a life-changing experience. Longest I had been gone from home and. That was a really big deal, and it was like kind of a St. Louis, you know, Spirit of St. Louis tour kind of deal, like us all venturing out and experiencing that stuff together. But yeah, everywhere we went, we made friends, and it's still the same way. I'm the same way now. Like I, I will meet somebody that I will intend to continue to know. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. the fabric of our uh, our lives, and some people are there for a short time, and some people are there for a long time. But everybody gets that same amount of kindness and welcome, and that was a drive of mine then because I kind of listened to the words of my favorite songs and like I'd listen to Op Ivy and I would just be like when he said you know he's a different color but we're the same kid is that an rancid song what is that uh I treat him like my brother he'll treat me like his there's like uh there's all these like unity messages in rancid and Op Ivy that I would just be like oh you know I'm gonna live that like I would get very very intensely into it and live it I would like listen to like an anarchist record and I would like want to smash my television and shit you know so I was, I was very much passionate and emotional about that kind of thing. It only went in our favor because it does not pay to be shitty. And some of those people are still shitty to this day. And some of the shitty people I still talk to and they are just, you know, maybe I just won them over because I never went anywhere. But they're just like, they're cool with me now. You know, it's just really funny. It's like, it hardly matters now. But at the time, it was such a big deal to uh, to kind of feel hated on. And not that it mattered because it kept me going. And that was the ethic for me. I was very much, that's why I found punk rock because I was definitely kind of had a, a bit of, you know, not too, not bullied too bad, but definitely that kind, that end of things where I was not the cool kid and did not get to have the experience I wanted to have early on. 
And, you know, once you find punk rock, you realize everybody has their season. And, you know, once you find punk rock, that's the season. It's time to do your thing, you know. It didn't bother me that people, you know, but I was I was always after not necessarily the approval, but I was just after the unity, the, the friendship. And I, and I knew what we did was fucking cool. I was like, you know, we're just getting better and better and we're saying fucking real shit. And it's loud and fast and precise and we're doing everything. You know, I was just all about having a whole community of friends, you know, and having no enemies. Yeah. That's cool. That's how I remember you guys. <laughs> that's awesome. That's that's a great. That's awesome to, you know, get that perspective because now's the first time where I'm starting to talk to other people about it. You know, by the time we played that reunion show, it was kind of like visceral. I was like, okay, what is other people's perspectives of our band? And um, never realized that anyone remembered, but Stephen was kind of telling me for a few years actually, like hey, like, some of those people are still around and some of those people have, like, younger brothers that didn't get to see us that grew up on us because their brothers were listening to us. And so, you know, when we played that show, a lot of those people were there too. Dude, it was wild. It was a moving, moving experience that people were, you know, it was by popular demand that we did it. And that's fucking crazy to me. 2014? Uh, yes. I think 20... No, it was more recent than that. 2018, oh, wow. so very recent. The whole thing is somewhere online. I tried to watch it and was like immediately embarrassed and I can't revisit it. But um, everyone I've talked to is just like, dude, like DeMofo, our buddy Justin who ran Dark Front Records. He's the guy who put out uh, Tearing Me Apart and he watched that live stream. And he's just like, I was crying, man. It's just cool. And, uh, you know, it's for those reasons, uh, you know, that we're talking about it, that people remembered it and it was this thing that I start to think maybe it wasn't just everybody fucking played some chords with a couple of their buddies in a garage. From the dawning of man, people were playing garage music, you know, so... You know, I can't really tell anybody that uh, my experience and what we were doing and what our camp of people and our community of musicians were doing was any more unique than anything else. But I really do think that, like I said, everything has its season. And, you know, like, ska was really big in St. Louis in the early to mid-90s. It was a huge deal. There's a lot of aftershocks of that. And there's people around that will still say, I talked to people from, like, MU330, you know, a lot of those bands and a lot of the kind of rude boy dudes. And they're just like, oh, you know, they're like veterans. They're just like, I don't know what happened to my scene. I don't know what happened to my music. Like, there was such a huge scene here you know and it was all happening for us and now it's this kind of extinct thing that you kind of have to dig deep to find you know ska let alone good ska you know but yeah like everything has a season i'm sure that there's eras of hip-hop in brooklyn that will never be the same again it was just that flash in the pan everybody was in the right place at the right time same with you know la with any kind of music um, but for us there just happened to be something in the air for that turn of the century you know what i mean I, it might have been that it was a, a, a turning of the century that that gives it some weight maybe it's the fact that a combination of things um, but i do think that a lot of the bands were really good and they were all different you know you didn't have to play with a punk band if you were a punk band you didn't have to find two other punk bands to book a show you played with whoever you know was in your peer group or was booking the show but you'd have a metal band and a punk band and a emo or wh whatever it was i think that's unique about st louis i think that we had a lot of different types of music and we were cool playing any situation with any kind of band we weren't cooler than any kind of show we just wanted to do our shit you can go to a show in st louis and see five different types of music and be like 
damn, like, that's just South City, you know? <laughs> You'd be in an echo chamber if all you did was go to shows where everybody was playing punk rock. You want to hear some weird shit. That's why I think going to the Lemp Arts Center early on was really special because I got to see, um, you know, some of the noise stuff lost me, yeah. but some of it would grab me when they would actually manipulate something into a way that I could tell what they were doing was artful and not random. You know, Lemp Arts Center really turned me on to different types of music. The cast of characters at that time that were coming in and doing their craft and making that place what it was. That place was only some of the artists that came through there and graced it with their presence. <laughs> so that's all I want to say about that. But, you know, that place uh, really did have some interesting shows at that time. And I was seeing, there was this guy, uh, Dark Inside the Sun. Yeah. He did some, man, I was like way, way into him. I wish I didn't uh, he's one of the people that I lost track of. You know, he was one of my favorites, you know, and even spoken word and like just anything. I was just kind of hungry to see what people's expression was, and I was excited that I had found mine. Tell me, uh, so on your tour in 2002 with the Pews, where'd you guys go? We, I don't remember every city, but we went to, I want to say we were, you know, it might have been seven or eight cities, but we did, uh, we started in Chicago and we went to Milwaukee. I don't remember the order either, but Chicago, Indianapolis, Milwaukee, uh, St. Paul, Kansas City, and St. Louis, and maybe Carbondale was in there or something. I know we played the Lost Cross. Might have been a different time, though, so that might have been it, but I know we were gone for a week, and so I would say six or seven shows. I might be missing one, but that was the overall loop that we made from Chicago up to the, uh, Minneapolis and St. Paul and down through Kansas City and back to St. Louis. Columbia. We played the ranch in Columbia with, I think, Bright Eyes. Oh, damn. Uh, it was some random thing where we had, we were booking our, ourselves back. We always booked at the ranch, and um, there were always random parties, and sometimes bands were thrown on. And uh, so we had already been promised to be put on that show, and that just happened to be where Bright Eyes had to play. And so... <laughs> like something happened and it was like okay this is what's happening and so we ended like i think our last show of the tour was there and then we came back to st louis i think within a few days had played um you know kind of our own homecoming show but yeah 19 in the pubes and um d mofo was on bass with the pubes so it was mario and bass amp and justin deming on bass me and Tim and Steven, oh, I'm sorry, and Pete Henry, of course, um, of the pubes. But yeah, and we found ourselves in the craziest situations almost every night of that tour and have like <laughs> legendary, legendary stories and some film to back it up. Do you want to share any of those stories? Um, the most notable one is that the place we stayed in um, Milwaukee was a bunch of like clowns. We met one of them earlier in the day. He came out to the show. He showed up on a tall bike, kind of a wacky looking dude. And I hadn't really seen a lot of like, like I'd seen train hoppers that were more punk rock, but I hadn't seen like kind of crusty train hopper, like clown, like entertainer, kind of more, you know, New Orleans type kids yet. This guy was kind of, you know, looked like maybe he was into punk rock, but he also looked like a clown. And so he, He's like, stay at my house, here's the address, blah, 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 and we head back, and there's this metalhead literally wearing a Testament shirt, drinking Milwaukee's Best on the front stoop, and we're just like, this is Milwaukee as fuck right here. He's like, who are you guys? And we're like, oh, we're staying with, you know, so-and-so, and he's like, oh, staying with the clowns. And I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, you don't know? And I'm like, no. 
And he goes, you'll see, man. You'll see. And so we go in there, and it was a commune, and there was like 17 or 18 people living there. And they were a traveling freak show called Circus Berserkus. A number of them had like clown makeup tattooed on their face, like hardcore, and they weren't juggalos. They were like straight up living for it. There was many things that happened that night. Um, one of which was the one guy filming a porno of one of the other guys and the camera guy's wife. There was a fight in the backyard with uh, two men in dresses and ended where, you know, the guy that won ended up winning by like, twisting this dude's like dick around like 500 times until he was you know screaming in pain like i saw like the craziest shit at this house me and steven just like we slept in the attic and it was like this crazy vaulted ceiling and they were nothing but nice to us in fact they gave me an old 80s tony hawk pal peralta skateboard in the attic and um i'm freaking out about it because it's like an original pal peralta and they were like you can have that man like they were they gave me a skateboard they were super nice they gave us a place to stay they came out to the show have nothing wrong with the people, but the activities in this household were fucking wild. They gave Basamp, uh, they gave Basamp some like mushroom tea, and I don't know what it was. They, they didn't say it was mushroom tea, but we're pretty sure it was something like that. But he got like really freaked out and weird. It's funny because people that were there with us on tour, two of us, Tim, our drummer, and the other guy Ben that was with us, slept in the van, and they don't share the story with us because they didn't meet a single person or see any of it. But it was crazy, and most of this is on film and has been documented. Mario digitized it, and I've, I've been begging Mario and Basamp to get me a copy of it because a lot of it is on there, and uh, including including the Basamp walking into the room where the porno was being shot. So he's filming the camera guy filming a guy and his wife, and so the whole thing literally is documented and. Um, I've never revisited it. I just remember it so vividly, and we talk about it a lot. But uh, that was the craziest situation that happened on that tour. But yeah, we had a ball, and it was a really cool experience. Got my first tattoo on that trip in uh, St. Paul. A couple of us got tattooed, and uh, in that town, there was like some punk rock girl that was just like, where are you guys headed? I'm going with you. And so she ended up like... She disappeared at some point, but she ended up going, making her way to Kansas City with us. And so for a couple nights, she like sold merch for us and uh, put us up at her place in uh, St. Paul, which was really rad. So yeah, it was just a really cool trip. I had just got a my 83 Chevy van on the road and put a bunch of shag carpet in it. And so we had our own vehicle and it was the maiden voyage and it was really exciting. So that tour was really a big deal for us, you know, as a band. To be with Bass Sam and Pete Henry and Mario, you know, and then DiMoso, Justin Deming, who, you know, really wasn't, he wasn't in the pubes. I mean, we always like treated him like our label executive, but, you know, it was just our buddy. So it was cool. It was like the dream team for us, you know. Did you guys have tearing your part on that tour <laughs> Yes, we had it like days before that tour. So the tour was an album launch, which was amazing. It would have really sucked to go on that tour without it. But then Justin had really cool ideas. And one of the things we did was we made a five song sampler of the two albums, uh, ridiculing anything and everything in our way and tearing me apart. And we made a little package with a sticker and a button and a CD and a flyer wrapped around the CD with information about who we were and what we were up to and uh, that from our upcoming album. And then we went with like, you know, Daniel Hill and DeMofo and a bunch of friends and we piled in, go to like Thrash Fest in Minneapolis and uh, Thrash and Burn Fest in uh, Chicago. Random places, like we followed the distillers on a tour and just 
went to every show. We just passed out our samplers, like, everywhere. And then, uh, so, even when we weren't touring, we were still, like, they were, like, business trips. And we were, like, partying. We were having a blast. I mean, I didn't drink or smoke at the time, but um, all my friends did. And so, it was just, like, it was really cool for me because I remember all of it and i got to watch my friends have so much fun and we were just out there like handing out free shit and uh, justin was helping us fund it as our label it was just really really cool and then some of that t another thing i haven't mentioned to you was uh, there was also a bit of time uh, during those years that i played in a band with uh, daniel hill called bomb guam daniel hill on uh, drums this guy skank on vocals skank was the bassist and vocalist and he decided he just wanted to be vocalist and so i played bass for that band and this was probably 2001 to 2002 or three was it a greg Stinson on guitar um we practiced at greg's house uh, no it was a guy named leon on guitar uh, but we practiced at greg's house and that's how i knew got to know greg and i've known him forever he lived on the same street as my first girlfriend and so I was always in that neighborhood, ended up practicing with Bomb Guam, ended up going to shows with them and partying with Greg. And that was kind of like the birth of um, a whole nother scene for me, you know, and they all hung out with people that I didn't know. So I was like still bridging gaps between friends. I was like, okay, I know this guy and this guy, but these guys don't know each other. I don't know how much I would, wouldn't mention much about Skank. I think he went on to do some pretty nefarious things, but Daniel Hill, love catching up with him. I, I work at Vintage Vinyl. So in the before times, when I actually went to work and we saw people, uh, I would see him a lot. He'd pop in and we would reminisce a little bit. But uh, but yeah, Bomb Guam handed me a fretless bass that only had two strings on it. It was the two middle strings. And uh, the frets had been pulled out and I had to figure out where the, the markers were. And it had um, flats on it. <laughs> and I figured out all their songs. You didn't need more than two strings to do those songs. But it was fun because I played all these places I'd never played and I met more people that I didn't know. And people were way into them just like they were into other bands and it wasn't up to snuff for me musically but you know I play music for hire now so I bands will hire me to rehearse a ton for one show or you know I'm in a I play with a ska band right now that hired me just to um, do a few shows and then they decided they really wanted me in the band it's you know it wasn't something I pursued it was just something I got hired to do and all these gigs that I do now that was kind of what led up to it Bomb Guam was my first like outside like this is not my band I am doing something to help them and their craft and whatever I can do to support them I'm not gonna overstep any boundaries I remember one time they were writing a new song and it was like one of the first new songs that I, I was gonna be involved with they were like oh, it's gonna go like this da, 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 da. and I was like okay you know what you should do though you should like stop right here right before you sing it should be like da, 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 da. you know and like we tried it and then skank was just like that's fucking genius dude and I was like oh my god like I am in a bubble So that was our chat with Matt Wilson. I want to thank Matt for taking the time to chat and for letting us use some of his music on this episode. You have been listening to Grind the Arch, Oral Histories of the St. Louis Music Scene, hosted by Caleb True and Jim Fitzpatrick. This episode has been mixed by me, Caleb True. The Grind the Arch logo is designed by Julia Hahn. To check out more episodes, go to anchor.fm slash grindthearch. If you dig this podcast, please rate and review it. If you have questions or comments, we can be reached at grindthearch at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.
situation, you're in the gun. 